please join me in welcoming the spiritual director of the largest, most delicious New Thought community in Canada, our very own Reverend Patrick Cameron. Awesome. Good morning. Here we are. If you'd like to sing a song with me, feel free, or hum along, or just move your lips and not make sound at all. And if you'd like to stand and do that with me, that would be great, and, or stay seated, whatever works for you, but I know many of you like to stand. Two can stay seated. In this very room, there's quite enough love. For all the world And in this very room There's quite enough joy For all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every fear For spirit Spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. One life, God's life. That life is perfect. That life is our life now. And so, in that knowing, in that declaration, I know in that declaration, I am shifted and changed. And I know that whatever is important for me to realize or be made aware of, I'm in that conversation and I listen and I pay attention. And I ask the questions, whatever comes up for me. But I do know that each and every one of us is that divine emissary of the infinite, individualized and expressing and creating with each thought. And so may we move into our wholeness. May we move into our understanding and depth of being like never before. And understanding all of it, all of it, all of it is God. The light and the dark. The shadow and the light. And so I just give thanks to stand with you in consciousness and know that the highest and the best is being called forth for each and every one of us so that we may be that divine emissary in the most complete and fully orbed manner possible. For this I give thanks and release these words in this knowing and together we say, and so it is. Please be seated. Thank you. Good morning. So I did a talk this morning earlier that I'm not going to do again because I'm done with that one. But I had to share it. I had a, we had a, Laura and I had a, a trip planned and it didn't work out and I told all of the lessons in that for me and it was good. It was really good and it was really nice to be able to share it. So you'll have to go online and listen to it, I guess. I don't know what else to tell you. But, but part of it was about things that happen in our lives. We make plans. We live an intentional life. And then everything goes in a direction we weren't planning. And how do we deal with that? And what's the, what's the gift in that? And so it was a wonderful talk. Probably the best one I've ever done in my life. But <laughs> you know what? It's old news. And it's done. And, and, and part of it, what I don't want to lose is I don't want to lose the, the, the pieces in it for me that I know that I can take and apply in a, in a way that, that will allow everyone to, to be more uh, productive. So with that said, we have been com- we're, we're coming out of September with the book, The Little Book on Meaning by Laura Berman Fortgang. 
and moving into Stephanie Dowrick's Creative Journal Writing. It's a wonderful book. And I'm going to continue to pull some stories out of, uh, out of um, the little book on meaning as we go into this idea of journal writing. And writing is very powerful. We were watching a program yesterday, and there was a lady on there that won $112 million in the California lottery. And she said her technique, she wrote down that she won $112 million in the California lottery. She put it on a piece of paper and put it under her pillow and slept on it. I thought, wow, is that living an intentional life? So I immediately got out my crayons and some paper. <laughs> but it is fascinating. I mean, you know, you see stuff like that, and it just makes me wonder, this stuff really does work. It's fascinating stuff. So, so part of, of Stephanie Dowrick's creative journal writing, and the reason I, I share that little story with you is that there's another wonderful book called Write It Down and Make It Happen. And what happens for us when we write things down, there's a connection that we make energetically with things that we write down. And it's fascinating to watch. In our Science of Mind classes, you'll see people, there'll be exercises where you'll have people write some declarations down about what they'd like to see happen, and then typically we'll mail them the letter within a, several months. And it's always fascinating to watch how people's lives have changed based on that intention, but they've written it down. And once you write it down, and you know, you, if you write it on pencil, you want to change your mind, you can always erase it and write something else down. But it's, we, are, we are this vessel of divine creativity and, and possibility. And Stephanie Dalrick in her book, The Creative Journal Writing, and that today's lesson is called The Art and Heart of Reflection. She writes uh, seven questions, and I won't touch on all of them, but we'll work through them as we go through this book this month. And a couple at the top are uh, the questions that she asks. When you're in journal writing, is you can write anything you want. Put it down any way you want. You, you, don't, you don't even have to write it well, but it's for you, for you to go look at and reflect. Number one, what's already working here? What's working in your life? And number two, who is this goal pleasing? And I think those are two really important things. When, uh, when Laura and I had a, a trip planned, I planned a trip for her birthday. And a lot of planning went into it. And uh, it didn't pan out. We missed the plane and never went, is what happened. And so it was very disappointing. We went home and we basically slept for two and a half days because we were so depressed and disappointed. And I share it with you because I think it's important to be present with what happens. And stuff happens in life that, that depresses us. You ever had anything happen that depressed you? Disappointed you in any way, shape, or form? I've had that experience too. That's part of life. I watch people, I watch, uh, I, I have a, a lot of wonderful books that I'm, I'm constantly, I'm, I'm, I'm in and out of books all the time because it's, it's just fascinating. I have a little practice that I do. Each week I say, you know, I'm looking for stories and then the book will sort of light up on the bookshelf. And it could be just me making it up, I think it is. But it sort of light up and I'll grab it and I'll close my eyes and I'll page to the book, okay, there's something good here and then I'll open it up. And it's funny because a lot of times there's nothing good there. <laughs> But I only remember the times when there was something good there. So I think it works, if you know what I mean. I mean, the law of averages are that you're going to hit something once in a while that makes sense. But it is interesting, the, 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 uh, the mindset I take to it. And I was looking through uh, some work. I love John Bradshaw. Bradshaw's an amazing guy and, and, and offered some wonderful um, techniques in my life for, for working through some things. And he talks about obsessive-compulsive disorder. Do you have, have you ever, maybe, you, you, maybe that's part of your spiritual practice. 
you know, people that, that and it, it shows up in a, a variety of ways. One is that people will wash their hands repeatedly because they're worried about germs and they're worried about contamination. And, you know, uh, and I, I've got a few people close to me that are interesting to watch when they go into a public restroom because it's a, it takes them a while to get everything in place before they can actually use the facilities. But it's, but it's part of that, that need to always, be, to always wash your hands, a compulsion for that. Another way it manifests is people that uh, you'll go back home thinking that you haven't locked the door, you haven't turned the oven off. Have you ever had those thoughts? Well, you, you might be borderline there, David, with that. But, but, <laughs> but you'll think you know, that the, you left the stove on or you didn't lock the door. And another one, as I was reading this week, which I had never heard of before, was that a lot of times people think that they've run someone over with their car. And so they'll circle the block to make sure that there's nobody laying there. In fact, and, and so what they've done is they've found that, um, it sounds silly, but, but you know what? Sometimes I can obsess on things with ideas, the same idea over and over again, and I'm, I'm participating in the, at the same energy. You know, uh, successful people find something more interesting to think about. But, but if we're, and so what they've done is they'll, they'll tell people that if you're, you're, um, your obsessive compulsive disorder is that you, you're worried about running someone over, they'll take the rearview mirror out because they're, they're looking in the rearview mirror all the time to see who they just hit or checking to see, which doesn't do anything for them. It just kind of just, now that instead of looking in the mirror, they got to crank their head around to see if there's, you know, while they're driving around the block. So what they found was a fellow by the name of Jeffrey Schwartz at the, he's an MD at the uh, UCLA School of Medicine. And he found that there were four things that they started working with people that were challenged by this. And the four things are to relabel, number one, relabel, number two, to reattribute, and number three, refocus, and number four, revalue. So relabel, they would, they would tell these people, here's the discipline. Try this for 10 weeks. Relabeling is their obsessive thoughts as symptoms of a disease and false signals. So what they're telling people basically is don't believe everything you're thinking. Not only that, don't believe everything you're feeling because it's a false signal. And I think, isn't that interesting? How we can change our, uh, to, to filter and, and learn how to think well is to learn how to live, as Dr. Holmes used to say. And sometimes when we get on these ideas, we, we, we grab onto something because of a past experience or experiences that have been repetitive. But it may be a false signal. It may not be the truth. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I'll never get a break. Whatever it may be. I think those are false signals. And so how can we relabel that? The first part is to identify it and label it in a new way. Oh, that's just a false signal. There I am downplaying myself again. There I am not st stepping up and, and being powerful. Because I'm powerful. You're powerful. We are powerful beyond measure. When I see a woman that writes $112 million on a piece of paper, puts it under her pillow, gets up the next week or two and wins $112 million, I'm thinking, wow, I've got to start doing that. In, in many ways in my life. You know, because I get, just like you, I get bogged down in the linearness of it. I do this, I get this. I do this, I get this. I do this. Why do we limit ourselves in any way, shape, or form? I told Lori, I said, what would we do if we had a $112 million? She said, I don't know. And we started thinking about it. What would we do with that? We're still thinking about it. I'll let you know when I figure it out. But relabeling the false signal. Number two, reattribute these thoughts by learning to think and say, this thought reflects a malfunction of my brain, not a real need to wash my hands again. So when we start, this is a malfunction of my brain, and it's okay. 
See, it's the integration. It's the integration. See, Carl Jung said, I would rather be whole than good. Carl Jung was an amazing, brilliant man. Therapists worked with Freud. They had a falling out, and he went on, and he, he, he developed the archetypes. But he said, I'd rather be whole than good. You see, what happens, many of us, and we've been conditioned, and I, I went through this as well, is this idea that we all need to be good. Everybody's got it, but we've got to be good. And so what happens for us is if we have, we have um, see, so the evil. We, <clears throat> don't use that word evil. There's evil in the world. There's parts of us that are the shadow self. Okay, those are the parts that, and when we can incorporate them and own them, we don't act them out. That's part of the integration. But when all of your, when all of your life you've been told you're good, you're good, you're good, you're good, and you haven't been able to own that piece of yourself, there's a more of a tendency to, to act it out. It, it can create a, dis, a disconnect with us. And it seems paradoxical. But to understand, we all have the capacity to do things that are not what we would consider good. And when we can be at peace with that and realize, okay, that's just who and what I am, it makes a huge difference on the planet. Because then you show up complete. Then you show up fully orbed in your wholeness. You know, I, I can... I, I, last night when uh, Hobby Bullen missed the puck and they, they went in... I know a few of you are hockey fans. I just happen to be switching over from Oprah to The View. I have them both recorded and stopped in there, saw it. I, I said, darn it, when that happened. Gosh, darn it. What was he thinking? Doesn't he know he's supposed to stand in front of the net and just wait there? and Don't be skating out there. But we all have the, the capacity to, 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 and that's why we can identify with it. But when we can identify with it, it becomes integrated. And then that which it becomes integrated, we don't have to play out. We see a lot of aberrant behavior. You know, when we make sexuality um, titillating and cheap, and what, the way that it's marketed many times, it, it, it sends a message that, is confusing for people. And if they are not integrated in their sexuality, then they find ways to play it out that are aberrant. And, and, and you know the stories and you see the things that happen. But it's one example of that. That's how aberrant behavior shows up. Aberrant greed. This, 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 there's never enough money. Never enough. I mean, look what happened with uh, the corporations in the United States and the, the whole financial institution. Now it's being reorganized. Now it's being redone in some ways. Hopefully that it'll come out of it e even cleaner. But it's, a, it's that lack of integration. And that's why it's important to own all of it and understand it's not here to deny any part of it but to be whole rather than good. Number three, refocus on a constructive behavior such as so when the thing starts to happen, you want to go wash your hands again or you're going to go around the block again or you're going to go back and see if the door is locked or you're going back and you're thinking in some other small capacity to say, I'll go out to my garden and work or I'll read a book that I've been wanting to read. So it's having the awareness to catch ourselves when we're going back into that habitual pattern. And I know this is an extreme but I think for all of us, it's helpful to have that discussion and to refocus, to refocus our energy. Where can I put my energy? Where can I do something that's more meaningful and powerful? And the number four, to revalue the, the obsessive thought and compulsive behavior, realizing they have no intrinsic value, value and no inherent power. So when we're having those thoughts about ourselves, not being good enough, not measuring up, they don't have any in intrinsic value. They don't have any power. It's the power we give to them. It's a great story about 1,500 years old about Beowulf. And I, you may have seen, I think Angelina Jolie did a movie. I haven't seen that one. But I've seen a, a number of the 
of the uh, productions of Beowulf over the last few years. And Beowulf is an ancient story about heroism. Beowulf goes into a village and Horthgar is the, the king and they have this demon that has been terrorizing the village. And so Beowulf, being the hero, tells the king, I can take care of this for you. And the king says, I'll give you, take care of it. I'll give you half the kingdom. Sounds like a pretty good deal. So what Beowulf knows is that you cannot defeat Grendel, who's the, who's the, the demon, with any weapons. So faces, goes in and faces Grendel without any weapons, no sword, nothing. And so he goes into the... And what, what this journey represents for Beowulf is that he, he dives into this swamp to find Grendel. And the, the water is a metaphor for going into the depths to that shadow side. Grendel represents a part of Beowulf. And so Beowulf does battle with Grendel, defeats Grendel, and goes back, and everybody's excited and happy that this threat is gone and, and life is good. Unfortunately, the next night, Grendel's mom shows up and starts to wreak havoc and seek revenge upon the village again. And so Beowulf is called once again to dive back into the waters because Grendel's mom lives at the, the depths of the water. And there's all kinds of these sea monsters and creatures all along the sides of the caves. And he dives in. And in order to defeat both Grendel and Grendel's mom, he has to love them. He has to identify with them and incorporate their qualities, their darkness, their evilness into who and what he is, and he owns it. And so the metaphor in it is that he finally sees a sword that's hanging on this wall. He's underwater, of course, doing battle. And he pulls it off, and that, that sword represents that, that spark of awareness, that integration, finally, that works for him so that he can, he can defeat. But he, in the, the defeat of Grendel's mother is really an incorporation of those qualities. It's an ancient story. It's 1,500 years old. It's about the integration of diving into the depths of our being, where we're struggling, where we're challenged, and, and, and owning it. I wanted to read a little, little uh, explanation from Bradshaw's book on it. I was looking at it last night. He says, both, both Beowulf, when Beowulf kills Grendel and Grendel's mother, he has become Grendel and Grendel's mother. They represent his own demons and monsters and strengths. As poet David White says in The Heart Aroused, Beowulf has wrestled with his interior and exterior monsters to the point where he admits them as himself. This is exactly what happens when we own our disowned parts. We become them, and they become us. The re-owning is an absolute essential ethical act. Horthgard's wife says of Beowulf, he admits to his weaknesses, and in the admitting, they become his strengths. It's paradoxical. So it's not pushing away the tendencies and the things where we discount ourselves. But I think it's, it's important for us to know that we, we're the ones that give it labels. It's also important for us when it's there for us to be able to own it. Say, hmm, isn't this interesting? This stuff's going on in my life. It was very I had set this trip up for Laura and I, and then it didn't happen. And it was very disappointing. I, did, I spent months getting this, this surprise ready for her, six months at least. And, um, and then I missed, we missed it. Missed the plane variety of things happened. But in it, the, the, the blessings in it and the, the, and the qualities and things that helped create this for myself, what I realized is that they were, they were small little things that had sort of in, 
insidiously gone on for far too long. They created a situation that didn't allow me to honor my commitment and to be able to honor someone that's very important to me, my life. And I realized, you know what, when I let those things slide in my life, when I say yes to too many things, when I try to be too many things to too many people, this is how it plays out in my own personal life. And this is a pattern that I, I got from my father as a kid. And, I, and, and so I, I'm aware of it, the beauty in it. What's working here, as, as Stephanie Dowler could say, is the awareness to have this teaching to be able to say, you know what, I don't think I want to do that anymore. That didn't feel good. It didn't feel good to be able to share the gift and the excitement of that and, and the surprise. And so there's ways to do it. There's ways to look at how we operate around here, how the communication flows around here, so that it's much more efficient, so that there's, it's done in a timely way that everybody's... There was, I, I got in here and I, there was things going on Monday morning and by the time I'd addressed things that I thought had all been handled, and they had, but I got distracted. And so in that distraction, I had about 15 minutes to go home and pack and get on the road to the airport. And what I failed to realize is that I had left my wallet and all my travel documents and a bunch of cash in a restaurant the night before. And so by the time I called the restaurant and asked the guy, could you please look, he said, yeah, I'll look. And then he called back an hour and a half later, and I'd already canceled the flight. He found everything. I got everything back. But I'd already canceled the flight. And if I'd asked WestJet for more help, I probably could have just said, I'll miss this flight, take a later one, and the charges would have been minimal. But I was in crisis mode, and I left myself no window. I thought, you know, as I said earlier in my earlier talk, what would it take if I just said, you know, I'm traveling tomorrow. Why don't I take, of course, it was a Sunday. But, you know, from the feedback I get from all of you, it looks like I'm taking Sundays off anyway, so I could have just taken Sunday off. And I'm just kidding. Just, 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 it's a joke. It's a joke. You are all very supportive and loving. Every one of you. I love you dearly. Thank you. But the point being is, why not factor those things in? Why schedule oneself so tightly that it's, you know, and as if, and as if I'm the only guy that can do stuff around here. If you see me in action, there's barely anything I can do around here. But, but, but this whole idea of, of getting back into the details, details, details. And that's part of that pattern for me, and I realize that. And that, for what I know about this and the significance of this, is that I'm always asking for the next piece of wisdom. What's the thing that I, I'm being called to grow into? What can, how can I do this differently? And that's the beautiful thing about having this teaching and realizing what, what obsessive-compulsive behavior how, can I relabel and, re, and, and redirect in a way that's meaningful? And to realize when those things come up, to be able sooner rather than later say, put them down. Don't put that down. That's handled. Put that down. You know, because it's my, my propensity is that, you know, anything shiny that, that floats across the my field of vision, I, I go with it. You know, oh, there's something, there's a bright light there. <clears throat> but, would, yeah, and I know you laugh because you can identify with that. So this, this, this whole idea around being obsessively compulsive, I think it's so important for us to, to I, see, I agree with Carl Jung. I would rather be whole than good. I'd rather be whole than good. I, I love being able to, to be, have the honest conversation with you. I have many prayer partners in my life, and they're wonderful people. And they know me as I am. They know me with my weaknesses, the areas that I my strengths. They know me inside, and I know them. And we love each other back and forth with affirmative prayer. So it's not a mystery. I'm not pretending. For me to stand up here and tell you, man, I got it all together. And, and the reason I missed the flight was because of this person and that person and this condition and this condition. No. You know, I look at it and I realize there's things in my life that need to change. 
I'm asking for guidance. I'm asking for instruction. I'm asking for ways to be more effective, more powerful in the things that I think I'm called to do. This has to go. And I know that. And, and it's nice to be able to have a partner who looked at me and said, you know what? It's, it's, it's the thought that counts. And when she said that, I said, oh, baloney. <laughs> but isn't it great to have a partner? And the other thing we do, that I think we all do this as metaphysicians, don't we? Something happens. We miss the plane. What, you know, something happens, and then we go, wow, there's got to be a bigger reason here. It's like the story of the kid that got up on Christmas morning and there was a, par, a, a pile of a horse apples under the tree. And he goes, oh my gosh. And he starts digging in there and throwing the, the horse manure all over the room. And the dad says, what are you doing? He says, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes you just miss the plane. You know. But we both said it. Oh, it's got to be a reason. Yeah, it's got to be a reason. You're going so fast, so hard, trying to, trying to take care of everybody and be in every conversation and, deta- and, and manage all the details. This is what happens. Then this part of your, your life suffers. There's the mystery in it. There's the bigger purpose. You know, sometimes it isn't because you're here and you bought the right lottery ticket at the right time or whatever it may be. And I think that's part of, that's part of the gift as well, is to understand it and to make peace with it and just... Go back into it and realize, you know what, things have to change. And so we'll have this discussion because I'm very focused on it now. And the other thing, the commitment for myself, I'm not going to forget about it. I'm going to stay on it. Because I know my tendency is to go, ah, it's okay. And then just go back to the way things were. And I don't want to do that because that's not healthy. That's not balanced. So there's the gift and there's the blessing. And I tell you, we went home after (laughs) we found out we weren't going. And we must have slept for two and a half days. Part of it was disappointment and depression, and the other part was we were just worn out, just exhausted. And so we probably saved a little money sleeping here rather than sleeping there. <laughs> All of those things. But I share that story with you because it's real. I, and, I, and I think it's important for us as metaphysicians to realize we have everything we need. What's showing up for you in your life? If you've got, if you've got issues in your life around things that, you, that, that make you feel like you're not good, Maybe you need to move there. Say, what is that about me? What is this anger? You know why we don't meditate? I think many times we don't like meditating because we feel like when we sit down in meditation, there's so much anger, there's so much pain there, I don't want to feel it. And, and the, the, the amazing thing that I know about meditation is if you're willing to step into that and you're st- willing to be present with that, that's just a momentary experience. And the only way to, to, to alleviate that is to dive into it and to feel it and experience it. See, what healthy people can do is they can be in rage, they can be in anger, they can be in fear. But they don't, act, they don't have to act it out. The parts of me that were angry at myself, I mean, when this happened, from, I planned this for months. The disappointment I felt, I just, I wanted it to be over. I mean, I just wanted the pain to be over. I didn't want life to end, but I thought, oh my gosh, this, when am, how long is this going to take? And then we just sat with it. And there was no finger pointing. But that's what spiritual practice gives you. You can be in it. That doesn't mean... So I could take that story and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a goof up. You know, I, I, I messed up. I can't get anything right. All that stuff, you can make... I can, I can argue for weeks for that limitation. But to look at it at a deeper level and say, what happened here? Why did this unfold this way? And, and there's the gift in it. Because I, I know for myself, and I've talked to a few mentors around here since this happened, 
But I know that we're being called as a community to some amazing things. There's changes going on on this planet. I mean, there are, there are dysfunctions on this planet. And, and so much of it is because the reason I feel so passionate about owning that shadow side and doing that dark, that, the work is because when I look at the dysfunctions that are out in the, in the culture, it's a result of people not having that integrated and not understanding that's part of all of us. We can be the thief. We can be the liar. We lie to ourselves. And I'm not saying we celebrate that here, but what I'm saying is we have the tools, we have the gifts, we have the clarity, we have the consciousness here to help all of us move through that, myself included. I look back at my life, I, I read Patrick Swayze's autobiography written by his wife and he, uh, this last week, and I knew Patrick years ago. We did a play together and he mentions it in the book. And, and the thing I know about Patrick was he never changed the whole time. I read this book and I thought, my God, he never changed. And the thing for me that was, I, and, I, and I love this guy. In my newsletter article this month, I talk about my relationship. I'm going to miss my friend. I'm going I'm to miss looking forward to whatever he's doing next. Because that's when we have friends. I mean, his success was, was my success, in a sense. And our paths diverged, and he kept going. But he never made peace with himself. He was always driven. His goals were not his goals. His goals were his mom's goals. I met his mom. <laughs> Mom. Never forget the first time I met his mom. She came into the play, and his mom was a, a choreographer. She's still alive and an amazing woman and dance teacher. And I, I looked up, and I said, hi. And she looked at me. If looks could kill, I would have died right on the spot. This woman meant business. She wasn't there to make friends with anybody. She was there for her son. And her son was the sun. The sun and the moon rose out of, out of Patrick's behind, as far as she was concerned. <laughs> She was all business, but they were just driven, the whole family. And it was an energy, and you knew, just get, get out of their way, because they're not here for any small talk. And is that right or wrong or good or bad? No, it's just a way of being on the planet. And I read the book, and I thought, you know what? This guy, it never dawned on him that he could be at peace in his own heart. You know, when you're at peace in your own heart, when you're in, you're, when you're in the wholeness, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You can miss the plane. I mean, in the scheme of things, missing the plane is relatively minor, is it not? I mean, I know people that are doing cancer right now. I know people that have lost loved ones. I know that people are facing major surgeries. I know people whose relationships are ending. I know people that are struggling with addiction. So to miss an airplane, that's relatively minor. You know, we had a story made up about it. We'll get to, and we'll do it again. Yeah, we'll plan it and do it better next time. I'll take another Sunday off and... I'll, I'll, I'll plan it better. But we do, folks. We have everything we need. So to, to, to talk about this, I think, is important. And I think it's important to honor that path that we're on, that journey. And, 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 to, and to realize we're here to be whole. And wholeness is that God essence that is seeking expression. And wherever that's not complete for us, it's going to continue to play itself out in our experience. It's just the way it works because it's part of us. And that which we resist persists. So when you think about yourself, you are good already because you're godly. There's also wholeness that's seeking expression. And so when the, when the, the, the request is for wholeness, Stuart Wilde talked about when he was a young man, 28 years old, he, he discovered Taoism. He stopped in a church in England and he went and he sat in the back pew and he was listening to the organ player who was rehearsing a box fugue. And he said, what do I want out of life? What am I going to be? Where am I going to go? And what came up for him, what was the most important thing for him was wisdom. And he said, you know what, God, guide me in the wisdom. There's a prayer. There's an affirmative prayer. I'm guided in wisdom this day. 
to deepen in the wisdom, to deepen in the health, to, to deepen in the wholeness. And you're a gift wherever you go. Wherever you are, you've got what you need. And you're powerful and you're wonderful and you don't have to say a word to anybody. Grounded in that power and that, and that presence of being. You are so dynamically and radically present in your, in your body, people get it. And you're irresistible. I wanted to share a story from uh, Laura Berman Fortang's book. Also, a Hindu philosopher and mystic who died in 1990 tells a story about the Buddha. Three different people come to the Buddha with questions about God. It's important to note that the Buddhist tradition exists in the absence of a creator God. See, Buddhists don't talk about God. And the first man asks, does God exist? To which the Buddha answers, yes, because he knows that the man is an atheist and he wants him to be challenged in his belief. The second man asks, is there a God? And the Buddha answers, nope, not at all, knowing that the man is looking for confirmation of his own belief. And the Buddha would not dictate any one belief. The third man humbly asked the Buddha, would you say something about God? To which the Buddha replies by closing his eyes and sitting in silence. The man joins the Buddha and after half an hour gets up and touches the Buddha's feet and says, thank you for your answer. The Buddha's elder cousin watches all these exchanges and is bubbling over with confusion. How can the, the Buddha give contra contradictory answers to the questions? When he asks, the Buddha explains that he has answered according to what each person brought to the question. The last man, the Buddha says, was the wisest, for he knew to be still with the question. And you are puzzled about what answer he thanked me for. He received the answer that silence is divine, and to be silent is to be godly, and there is no other god than silence. He went away tremendously fulfilled, content. He has found the answer. I have not given him the answer. He found the answer. I simply allowed him to have a taste of my presence. The last statement could sound egotistical on the Buddha's part, but I interpret what he means by presence as not his actual being, but his ability to be fully there in the moment that influenced the visiting man to be able to do the same, which in turn led to the answer. That's the wonderful thing about what we do. I believe we do and support one another in is it, it is discovering our own answers. You know, what's there for me to know about this situation around uh, this celebration of a birthday? You know, I'm going to work with that and I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to sit with that. I'm going to feel what's come up. And most of the mourning, because there was mourning that went on. It's a death of a dream. So you mourn that. But if you understand, oh, I've got to go through mourning now. Oh, God. I don't want to go through mourning, but I know I've got to feel what I've got to feel. To feel the disappointment. Otherwise, I'm angry and crabby and I play it out in some aberrant way with somebody else. And I want to do that. I want to be done with it. Complete with it. Should have heard the first version of this story I told. It went on and on and on and on. <laughs> now I'm just giving you the cliff notes. But all of us, all of us have everything we need. Do we not? We're all going to get through this. And where we end up, I don't know. But I do know that we take consciousness with us. We take our essence, our spiritual essence with us. And to do this work, I think this is, we're in a preparatory school here. Sort of university prep school. For whatever's next, I know it's wonderful. I know it's powerful. That was what Dr. Holmes talked about. Life is a continuum, an outward and upward spiral. And we're, when we're connected with that and we're living our lives from intention and clarity and power and the humility to understand who and what we are, 
And sometimes our hearts get broken. Sometimes we sob because of mistakes. Sometimes things happen that are disappointing. Sometimes people that we love that made such a difference in our lives. Like Patrick Swayze, in my article I said, you know what, every one of us that worked with that man benefited. Everybody's life got better being around him. Was he, was he, did he have it all together? No. But man, he brought a life and a passion. He brought that godliness to his work that was just amazing and powerful. He was an inspiration. And it didn't surprise me at all that he went on to succeed at the level he did. And was he a great actor? He didn't win an Academy Award, but I tell you what, he brought that life energy to everything he did. And he lived it fully. I think about him all the time. We never know when we're creating a memory for one another. We never know when we're influencing somebody. So isn't it wonderful to be alive? Isn't it great to celebrate your life? What can you relabel that allows you to live in that vitality and that, that power and that opportunity and that expectancy of great good? What, what inspirational thing will you go home and get the crayons out and write on your piece of paper and stuff it under your pillow? What will it be? Might as well give it a try. I'm going to be doing it. So it is. <laughs>